Hello, and thank you for joining me for today's episode of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. In this series, we hear from people in the field of eating disorders who share with us their personal and professional journeys, experiences, and reflections, ideas in a way that never quite get represented in the standard academic conferences or publications. I'm Kathy Pike, clinical psychologist and professor at Columbia University, and I am your host for Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. And I am delighted to be joined today by Professor Glenn Waller. Glenn is clinical professor at the University of Sheffield in the UK. He is past president of the Academy for Eating Disorders and current president of the Eating Disorders Research Society. Professor Waller specializes in cognitive behavioral therapy for eating disorders. He's published extensively in the field, has contributed many, many publications, over 300 papers and books, delivered training on CBT, really an expert in this area, recognized nationally and globally. Glenn, we're delighted to have you join us today. That guy doesn't sound anything like me. <laughs> let's find out who you are. Um, Glenn, let's start at the beginning. So growing up years, when did you realize you were going to go into psychology? It was a bit of an interrupted start, really. Um, I didn't start in psychology. I actually started out as a psychiatric nurse. And during my time doing that, doing, during my training for a while afterwards, I kept recognizing it was the psychological bits that made the difference. Um, from what I could see, I worked with a couple of um, behavior therapists, psychologists, and that just got me thinking, wow, there's something more you can do here. There's something about helping people not just be okay, but to change towards being better. And so my goal really arose from you know, seeing how people could do so well. And that's what got me into psychology. And that ended up with me thinking I quite like the research as well as the clinical side. And that's that's kind of been my career ever since, really. Bit of research, bit of clinical work, bit of teaching. So when you were a psychiatric nurse, what kind of setting, where, where did you work? It was in a grand old psychiatric hospital here in the UK, you know, in the days when they were just coming away from the idea of asylum and more towards the idea of can we help people live in the community. Um, but it was in that transition period when no one was, let's say, I wouldn't say anybody now knows 100% what they were doing, but we were far below 50% in knowing what we were doing at that stage. Mm -hmm. um, and that's also the very first time I ever encountered anybody with an eating disorder. You know, as a nurse, seeing people mm -hmm. being treated using old-fashioned methods, you know, they all kind of bed rest, you will have a radio if you gain enough weight kind of approach. Mm -hmm. And was was this a unit that had a whole range of individuals with vast different kinds of disorders? Every disorder going, you know, from young young adults all the way through to people with Alzheimer's. Um, there were, I think there were about fifty different units within the hospital, so every everything was represented there. And you said it's it, you were. As a psychiatric nurse, it was the first time that you encountered someone who had an eating disorder. Yep, I can think of three cases I remember from when I was in that period of my career. Um, and one of them was a male. The very first one was a male, just to uh, really beat the stereotype over the head. Um, and in all cases, it was just, what the heck is going on here? 
But I was like that about a lot of psychological problems. You know, what the heck is going on here? I don't understand it well enough. So how does training work in the UK? You're you're already trained as a psychiatric nurse. You decide you want to pursue more training as a psychologist. What does that take? And what was your journey? You go away and you do three years um, as an undergraduate. You do, in my case, three years on an academic doctorate. You do a couple of years of clinical experience. You then do two or three years of um, clinical training, you know, doctoral level training um, in clinical psychology. So it's, a, it's about a 10-year program, um, all in all, to go from scratch. And during that time, were you specifically focused on eating disorders or when did you get to eating disorders per se? This is going to sound like I'm being really disingenuous, but I had absolutely no interest in eating disorders when I started. Um, mm-hmm. And I actually got into eating disorders entirely by mistake. It was a, um, I was used to be doing a family therapy placement. The placement fell through because the supervisor was leaving. The only placement that was around was this unwanted one in working with eating disorders. So I took that and it kind of stuck. So sometimes life, life's biggest mistakes turn out to uh, have a serendipity that tell us what made it stick. I think my main interests were around developmental work. You know, I wanted to work with families, children, that sort of thing. And um, when I started working with eating disorders, it was kind of like, oh, this makes sense. I can understand all of this because it's got such a developmental ring to it. I can see how this person got here. I can see what's keeping them here. And that, I think, was probably the first time I ever realized developmental psychology doesn't stop at the age of 16 or 18. Um, and it kind of just grabbed me there. The other thing about it was, um, and I, I'm pretty sure anyone who knows me will tell you this, I don't like not understanding something. And when uh-huh. I encounter eating disorders, it was, what the heck is going on here? I, th- I think part of that is, you know, I'm male, I'm less, I've, I've known fewer people, I'm less into the culture of um, diet, etc. So to me, there was a bit of an academic puzzle about it, as well as the sheer kind of clinical quandary about what do we do for people like this. Mm -hmm. And what was happening in terms of treatment for people with eating disorders when you were doing your training? There was this little little known person called Fairburn, Mm -hmm. um, who was just coming up with some ideas about cognitive behavioral approaches. There were a couple of papers starting about about family-based treatments um, from the Maudsley. And there was, you know, there was a bit of stuff coming out, the Italian systemic therapists. Beyond that, there wasn't really a huge amount. You know, we were using behavioral and cognitive techniques that we were, it sounds horrible, but we were making a lot of that as we went along. We were saying, what's the problem? How do we deal with it? It sounds like there, the field was still really early in its formulation, in its frameworks to apply in terms of etiology and treatment. You are inherently curious and want to understand the world around you. Do you remember particular patients or frustrations that were part of your early training? It's hard to know how you separate it out because there have been so many. I mean, it's still something that surprises me. I can remember the the first day I was working 
on this placement. I can remember that I saw four people on that day and I can still remember three of them um, and how they did. And two of them did really well and I was really happy. One of them had the most hideous background, something I've not come across before. And I, to this day, I regret not knowing more. If I could meet her now, I think I could probably do a lot more for her. I mean, I look back on my career for those, those early days and I keep thinking, oh, no, what an idiot. Mm. Uh, but unfortunately, I don't, think I, was, I, I don't think I was that much worse than other people back then. Uh, it's mm-hmm. taken us a long while to get to grips with what it is we're what it is we can do. I look at outcomes for people with eating disorders with the best treatments we've got. And with all due respect to those wonderful people who developed these, we're still pretty sort of poor at helping people with eating disorders to get well. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was saying this to some people I was teaching the other day. You know, if we can get maybe 60% of people with bulimia or binge, binge eating disorder, if we can get 50 or 60% of those well, great and that's more than we used to get but there's still 40 percent who aren't getting well mm-hmm. but i'm not really going to be that happy until i'm hearing numbers that scrape at the kind of 90 percent mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm really hoping we haven't given up and said okay those were the early days now we're much more sophisticated we have nothing much left to learn mm-hmm. you know one of my messages to people would be we have still got a heck of a long way to go and i think you raise a really important point which is beware of thinking we have arrived, right? And uh, we do have models and frameworks now that that give us maybe more confidence going in, but as you say, still leave many people symptomatic. And um, we need to do, we need to think about doing, not just think about, we need to be doing much better. So, what is that drive meant for you? What is doing better and how have you tried to contribute to getting us further along in terms of improving treatment outcomes? I remember a conversation about 12 years ago with somebody um, who isn't in the field of eating disorders particularly, though he's done some work in the area. And he said to me, shouldn't you be winding down now, Glenn? You know, you're of an age where you, you would be absolutely entitled to just puddle along for the next you know, 10, 15 years and let other people do the developing. Um, and unfortunately, I'm really much more irritating than that. So um, the, the things that I, you know, I work with some fabulous people, I'm, I'm really lucky. If you're familiar with that quote about standing on the shoulder of giants, I've always thought that's how I've managed to get to where I am. Um, and the collaborators I work with, I could not, never have got anywhere near this without them. Mm-hmm. But the work that we as a team have been doing has been about trying to make sure we've got, you know, recent, the last 10 years has all been about developing briefer, more effective, scalable interventions that we can roll out without the therapy taking twice as long as it needs to and still retain good outcomes. Mm-hmm. So for me, I, you know, before COVID came along, we had long waiting lists. Since COVID, we've got even longer waiting lists. Mm-hmm. I don't like the thought that I could be sitting there seeing somebody and taking ages over it, and there's somebody else on the waiting list out there who would love to get some help. Mm-hmm. So our, our, it sounds very brutalistic, but I think probably the most important term in the work that I do is probably turnover. 
you know, helping us to get people not just into therapy, but through therapy successfully. So they get on with their lives and we get to help the next person along. Mm -hmm. That's been the drive for the last 10 years or so. Mm -hmm. So interesting. I, you, your comment reminds me of something that I often say to patients if they're considering going into the hospital, which is the only reason you go in the hospital is to get out of the hospital. And this idea about being focused on outcomes and objectives around recovery. So that's hard work in this field of therapy. We have time-limited treatments that, as you mentioned, the work that Chris Fairburn has done in championing CBT and many colleagues who have uh, contributed to that framework, enhancing that framework and approach to eating disorders. We still have a long way to go. You've been doing this clinical work for a long time. I I know you've got some big ideas about how we should be doing it. One comment that you make is we need to really focus on outcomes and efficiency. Uh, but but big picture, what what big idea would you say shapes the work that you do today or informs the work that you do today? From my point of view, that that need to go beyond we can get 60% or 30% or whatever proportion of people better. To me, the next step in that is one that's about us as clinicians. Um, And this is something where it kind of goes back to your point um, earlier on. You know, if you're going to hospital, the goal should be to get out of hospital. Um, And even to say that to a patient can be something that has people going, oh, you can't say that to somebody. Mm-hmm. We we tend to, we, we're really good at identifying, for example, when when a family member accommodates a problem, um, mm-hmm. you know. So okay, I won't insist they eat that food at that particular time. We're not so good at identifying when we as clinicians do the same accommodation. And what I'd like to do is use that that knowledge, that experience, to say to other people: if you're going to mess it up, do it in a new and different way. Don't repeat the mess ups we've made before, because you have to. You have to take the risk of messing something up before you can get better at doing something. You learn from the things that went well. You discard the things that didn't. Mm -hmm. So the one thing I would like to recommend that any clinician does is they go for the notion of being brave. Mm -hmm. That we don't say, okay, it's enough to be in the room with the patient. It's enough to have the patient in the inpatient unit, whatever whatever the setting might be. To me, it's really important we look at the evidence and the evidence says we need behavioural change and we need that change to be early. Mm -hmm. So if somebody is um, underweight, we need them to start eating early on to gain weight in order to learn that things can uh, improve. If Mm -hmm. somebody is normal weight or overweight and we... we need to get them starting to eat in a regular enough way that they can learn, actually, I don't have to binge. Mm -hmm. I can eat normally, food doesn't have to be out of my control. Mm -hmm. So the reason we want this early is all the evidence says most of the therapy benefit happens in the first few sessions of therapy. By session 10, we're starting to run out of gas really seriously. Mm -hmm. Adding another 20 sessions on isn't going to really help the patient. What it does is it makes us feel better because we never have to say, you know what, I think we've got to the end. Mm -hmm. We're much better at saying I'll see you next week than we are at saying 
actually, I think we're going to need to stop now because you've stopped changing. Mm-hmm. So, Glenn, you're you're talking about the really critical importance of behavior change. Tell me the ideas behind this and where you drew some inspiration for the focus around behavior change and the need for therapists to be brave and leaning into it. My my primary point, and I think it should be everybody's, was a psychodynamic therapist called Paul Meal. You haven't heard of him. You have got such a treat when you come to read some of his material. And one of the things he talked about, which relates to this notion of being brave, is the, the understanding of why we as clinicians don't push people to change. He talked about what he called the spun glass theory of the mind. Spun glass theory of the mind has nothing to do with um, autistic problems. It's absolutely to do with um, clinicians' beliefs about what patients can and can't tolerate. But a spun glass object, let me just demonstrate. Spun glass object is something like this, this little Christmas tree bauble. Mm-hmm. Um, there. Mm-hmm. That is very delicate. I will put this away afterwards in a delicate little box once it's stopped being there for you to uh, see. I'll put it away and it will survive till Christmas. And because I never put any pressure on it, it doesn't break. Mm -hmm. The way he described what we do in therapy sometimes is because we as the therapist don't want to be the person who upset the patient. We get them into the room. The patient will spend maybe 50 minutes with us. And we'll be as delicate as we can. We won't push the patient to make change, et cetera. And then at the end of the therapy session, we'll put the patient back out of the room and they will get on with the other 167 hours of the week without any additional skills or benefits. In other words, we give them a nice, easy time, but we never help them to toughen up so they can face the world out there. And with all, you know, with all due respect to the many wonderful clinicians I know, it's the stuff that happens out there that really makes a difference. So I view my job as to being as being coaching the patient, not being the therapist. I want them to be the therapist. So they can do therapy 168 hours a week and they spend an hour of that with me saying, okay, how can we try toughening you up here? How can we try taking a risk and seeing, oh, my weight didn't shoot up? Or actually I could look at my body and it wasn't terrible. Mm-hmm. So this idea and i hear you uh, as a therapist the moments of worrying about can i say this to my patient will she be able to hear me will she be able to tolerate it will i hurt her um so i i hear what you're saying and i think you've hit on something really important i also wonder as we understand Uh, more and more, the reality of trauma and the experience of trauma being something that increases vulnerability around eating disorders, that challenging, testing, creating moments of increased stress and anxiety might be difficult for someone with a history of trauma. Tell me how you think about that. I'm going to take you right back to Paul Meal. He, he was talking about this stuff in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. So this is not new stuff. It makes me feel quite old even thinking about it. Uh-huh. But he talked about what clinicians do um, and what he defined as a broken leg exception. In other words, we as clinicians make exceptions for particular patients. And we do it on grounds that actually don't have anything to do with the evidence. So when we talk about, oh, well, we can't work with somebody who's got trauma. 
We can't work with somebody who's got autistic spectrum problems. We can't work with somebody who is male. We can't work with somebody whose skin is the wrong color. When we start making those exceptions, and I have seen all of those over the years, then we start saying, actually, almost nobody ever gets the full-on treatment, Mm -hmm. which is great for those few people who get the full-on treatment, but not so great for those people who could have benefited from it. Mm-hmm. The evidence around trauma is lots of people have had traumatic experiences. Most of the people that I work with have had traumatic experiences, whether it's a level of emotional invalidation, abuse, neglect, whatever it might be. And I would say our job is actually to help them change. So again, the toughening up process. Mm-hmm. So when we when we developed our brief therapy um, for um, non-underweight patients, we very deliberately said, these are the people who are going to be coming through our door. We have to devise a therapy that will work for them, mm-hmm. not work for the ideal, simple patient. Mm-hmm. I would I'd simply say to people who might be watching this, when did you last see a simple patient? Right. I, can't, I honestly can't remember. Right. So right. our therapies have to be designed around, this person will need this. Our therapies need to flex to that person. Glenn, when you think about the your comment that, patients are, most patients we see are complicated. Most individuals come into therapy with multiple diagnoses, right? And so for those who have trauma, what data do we have about treating individuals who have history of trauma using the evidence-based treatments and particularly CBT? I'm involved in a study at the moment that is comparing or has been comparing. We now have the data. Um, it has been comparing people with eating disorders with trauma backgrounds using CBT versus compassion focused treatment. There were very small differences between the two. Both therapies did, did a really good job. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the adjustments that the compassion focused therapy made didn't make that huge a difference. There were, there were some differences. Absolutely want to uh, acknowledge that. But actually, the core of both therapies was they did really well. Mm-hmm. We, we've looked all our careers for things that are going to predict who will do poorly. You know, who's going to do poorly? What, what are the pre, pre-therapy predictors? If you look at Tracy Wade's work on this, et cetera, it's fabulously null because we are terrible at predicting who's going to do well and poorly out of therapy. Trauma doesn't make a big difference. Depression doesn't. Anxiety doesn't. The single biggest predictor of who's going to do well in therapy is how much change they make in the first four sessions, mm-hmm. maybe six. And so that applies across therapies as well. So while we have this dream that we know who's going to do well, who's going to do poorly, the evidence behind that is really poor. Mm-hmm. Um, don't get me wrong. I'm not for one minute saying CBT is perfect, give it to everybody. I don't think any therapy is perfect. And if you mm-hmm. think I'm going to stick up and say, CBT is wonderful, we should do only that. Nonsense. You know, mm-hmm. any effective therapy I'm all in favor of. And if it helps the patient to engage with a different therapy, as long as it's going to work, great. But helping people to engage with a therapy that is going to be very easy, but not going to be very effective, then I think that those patients need honesty from us. Mm-hmm. We need to be able to say, this therapy's got a 60% chance of getting you well, but it's going to be difficult at first, or this therapy's got a 5% chance of getting you well, but it's going to be lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- those are very important statements to be able to say to people. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that 
I sound with CBT is just being honest is such an important thing. I, I have this line that I talk about most with most of my patients in the first session, which is, you know what? This is going to be tough. And there are going to be times when you hate my guts because I'm going to be pushy to change. But here's a, here's a secret for you. I don't mind if you hate my guts. I mind if you don't get well. So mm-hmm. by all means, tell me when you hate my guts. That's fine. But let's get let's get you to the point where you can do that from a position of being healthy. Mm-hmm. And that comes back so many times. I get people at the end of therapy saying, that was really important. I, I thought at the first you were joking, but no, you were right. I hated your guts sometimes. But that was actually part of the process I needed to get well. So you started out saying that you could distill down your big idea to this statement, be brave, to the therapist. It also sounds like it's a statement that when clinicians are able to work in a space of being brave, that they empower their patients, their clients to be brave. Is that a piece of what you think is so important about clinicians being brave? I think it's about what we do um, in our own heads about the, okay, this is scary. Because every time I ask a patient to eat differently, I always think, well, their weight really does go up by five kilos. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have to tolerate my own anxiety. That's the part of the being brave I'm after. I'm asking my patient to be incredibly brave because I, I get to be brave about them one for an hour a week. They have to be brave the other 167 hours. Mm-hmm. I also have to get my colleagues to be brave. I have to... I have to work in an environment where everybody is saying, right, we're all scared about whether we get this right or not, but we're going to support each other. And that, that's equally important. Mm-hmm. The other group, of course, is families and carers. You know, mm-hmm. they need to understand this stuff. The reason that we've written and several other people have written books for um, carers for families is we need them to understand we're not just trying to be difficult. Um, and there's a reason why, you know, if you help us to, as a family, help your youngster to eat differently, you're helping that youngster. I think that the way that we always frame is, if we if we aren't brave, then we can be very supportive. But the question is, are we supporting the person with the eating disorder or are mm-hmm. we supporting the eating disorder? And mm-hmm. I really worry that sometimes we end up supporting the eating disorder by being so accommodating. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned being supportive and compassionate. As you describe being brave, I actually, I think you can be brave and supportive and compassionate in what you're describing in your approach. Uh, So would you say that's true? I think you have to be. This goes back to an issue that Terry Wilson talks about. It's the notion of firm empathy. I have to care about my patient, but I also have to be firm about if you want to, if you want to get better, I understand it's going to be really scary to change, but if you don't change, you're going to be stuck with this eating disorder for forever. It doesn't just go away. I know we all dream it will go away when we hit 30 or whatever, but it won't just go away because it's part of a trap. The way I describe it to patients and colleagues is imagine you fall in a hole. You really want somebody who's saying, Wow, I really feel for you down in that hole. That must be really difficult down there in that hole. How are you feeling? You know, what 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 got you to go into the hole? Or would you rather have someone said, 
let's kick you out the hole and then cover over the hole so you don't fall into it again. Mm-hmm. And most people would actually rather have the person who gets them out of the hole. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And the idea of firm empathy is one which I think is absolutely critical in understanding how the therapeutic alliance should be working as well. Because people so often go back on the, oh, but I've got such a good relationship with my patient. Um, and I think it's really important to understand what the therapeutic alliance is and that it's not just a good relationship with my patient. Mm-hmm. You know, therapeutic alliance is not meant to be smooth. It's not meant to be easy. Go back to Bordan. Look mm-hmm. at what Bordan was saying. It's not just I have a good attachment to my patient. My patient has a good attachment to me. That's lovely. But when I hear, when I hear a therapist say, I've got a good, good relationship with my patient. Wonderful. That sounds like they're the kind of person you'd love to have a drink with, et cetera. That's not a good therapeutic relationship. Therapeutic relationships involve you working on joint goals, tasks to therapy, et cetera. And by the, by the nature of the, the, um, that contrast, you get, I, I always think of the therapeutic alliance as being a prickly thing. It's more mm-hmm. like a cactus, not a smooth balloon, but a mm-hmm. cactus which is kind of at some point you're going to you're going to end up being hurt by it but the critical thing is okay how do we overcome um how do we overcome those therapeutic ruptures mm-hmm. if you spend your entire time thinking i must never have a therapeutic rupture what you're having is a lovely smooth chat mm-hmm. honestly i don't but think exactly. our patients need us to have a nice chat and what you're saying then is you're not it's that's not a place you're not in a space of standing brave because there are issues that you're not addressing Absolutely, or behavior chain that change that's not happening. Your comment, Glenn, makes me think about uh, headlines today in the newspapers. There's so much today around young people and uh, elevated rates of um, anxiety and depression. But when you go in to the article, and then you follow it to the original research, we're seeing that younger people are more willing to describe feelings of anxiety, feelings of sadness, uh, experiences of stress. And it, in some cases, is getting misrepresented as disorder, as something that is a terrible thing to ever feel. And what I'm hearing from you, maybe because I believe it, so I'm listening for it, but what I'm hearing from you is that actually there's a very there's a therapeutic value to experiencing stress and leaning into that, using it for growth. And that that I think that connects to what you're describing in terms of being brave is communicating that, that's where we grow. Is that right? Am I getting that right? You are, um, because so much of that experience of stress is about what can I cope with? Mm-hmm. You know, it, to, I, you know, I was brought up on the diathesis stress model, the notion that you're absolutely fine with a fairly high level of stress as long as you've got the coping mechanisms. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my colleagues often describe my working day as incredibly stressful. I don't experience it that way because I know how to do a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't feel lost with it. But I'd feel a bit kind of bored if I didn't have a bit of stress around around with it. Mm-hmm. The, the key, the key from what I from what I can see is if we can help the person to work with the stress they're already experiencing and develop the coping mechanisms to deal with that, great. That's exactly what we're after. 
And if, if your coping mechanism is, how do I express an emotion? Great, let's work on that. If it's, how do I, how do I wear clothes that don't make me look like I'm dressed in a sack? Great, let's work on that. If it's about, can I eat a sandwich? Great. Those are all things that will have different biological, emotional, behavioral, cognitive uh, impacts. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the more the more we can te- teach people to cope, the less they need us. Mm-hmm. And that's really critical because another part of the being brave is actually being brave enough to say, that's great. Well done. Off you go. Go live your life. Mm-hmm. And I know so many clinicians who are really quite poor at that. They tend to hold the patient much longer than needed. So the Mm -hmm. patient doesn't have to develop those coping skills. So you've talked about your own experience of standing on giants. Can you share with us a bit about how you think about mentorship and how you think about who mentored you and your role as a mentor today to colleagues coming up in the field? The number of people I've drawn inspiration from is way beyond anything I could talk about in a five-hour uh, five-hour broadcast like this. Um, I think I, if I pulled out the, the examples of people who really made me think, that is what I want to be like, mm-hmm. then people like Terry Wilson, people like Bob Palmer, people who've made me think, oh, okay, now I get it. Now I understand um, just what it is that you can do by mixing in a bit of who you are with what you do. Mm-hmm. I think those people have been really inspirational, but so are so many. Mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 pick up, I pick up an article, I watch a presentation, and I think, I want that person working with me. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I pick up an article and I think, I want that person to employ me mm-hmm. because they're so good. I, th- I think we owe it as mentors, and I've got this horrible idea, I probably have got the age where I'm probably more mentor than mentee material. Um, I think we owe it to the next generation and the generation of that to keep the train of um, mentoring going. Mm-hmm. Because if, if we don't open up and talk about this stuff with um, younger people, then they can't make their choices and they can't see what the options might be. So, Glenn, what would be a message you have for mentees who you work with today? Oh, I mean, my, my favorite message is, over the next 10 years, get better than our generation, get better than me, mm-hmm. because I'm not dumb enough to actually think we're doing a magnificent job with eating disorders. I think we're part of a staircase. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, you have to build that staircase. You have to go up on the previous stair. I'm quite happy being you know, two or three stairs back mm-hmm. because it's the it's the way that we get further up, um, further up our understanding. We get better at doing what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the, the main thing with mentees is. Don't try to copy what other people are doing. Try to synthesize it, make it better, and always, always measure it and prove that you got it better. Fantastic. So reflecting back, when you started this work, you didn't know you were going into eating disorders. You had this accidental exposure. It became the puzzle that intrigued you drew you in it's been uh your life work uh anything that especially stands out as something you thought you were going to be able to solve when you were young and starry-eyed compared to where you stand today I don't think I ever thought I'm going to solve this I thought it would be quite nice to maybe write a paper or two 
maybe you know get better. I think I've probably gone further than I ever would have said you know 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. But I do remember thinking and saying about 10, 20 years, no, about 20 years ago, when you know, when we've when we have as a field of solved eating disorders, I'll move on to something else. Uh-huh. And sadly, I don't think we've done that yet. So as mm-hmm. you say, it's my life's work so far. You know, there might be a little more time. I don't know. Um, but broadly speaking, I would say the thing that I'm really pleased about is that we've got much better at dealing with some people. The thing that drives me still, the thing that drives some of the clinical research that we're doing right now is we're still really poor at working with anorexia nervosa by comparison. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the thing I'd like to make a small indent on. I don't think we'll solve it, but I think being able to say, okay, we can add 10% to the number of people who get better will mm-hmm. be a major change right now. Again, mm-hmm. in 20 years, I might hope that'll be completely wiped out by much better therapies. One last uh, question for you. As you project forward, as you say, 20 years from now, what's one thing that you hope... Uh, that generation of researchers or clinicians will be able to say was their contribution? I would say I'd like in 20 years time that we weren't so busy burying ourselves in silos. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that I've learned over the years is we talk about eating disorders like they are something completely different to every other disorder going. But when you look at them, actually there's an awful lot of very common, um, common pathways, common problems common um, interventions that we can use. And yet still, I talk to people about innovations in the fields of anxiety and depression. And in in those fields, people go, yes, we know about that. Mm -hmm. In the eating disorders, we tend to be far, far behind. I usually say in CBT, at least, we're probably 15, 20 years behind um, the rest of the field of CBT. It's like we kind of don't quite buy the idea that people with eating disorders might have problems that have got something in common with other other disorders. We need to stop thinking in silos like that because there's so much we can learn from outside of this field that is so important. So that's what I'd like people to be doing in 10, 20 years, thinking, what can I, what can I steal from other areas? I've stolen from other areas my entire career, and it's been pretty helpful. I'd like other people to get good at that too. Well, you certainly have brought an enormous curiosity to the field and put it to work and contributed significantly. As you say, we've, we're doing better than when you started as a clinician, uh, doing better than when I started as a clinician, uh, but we have a ways to go and really appreciate your being part of that staircase and a step in the, in the right direction. Thanks, Glenn, for joining us. Good fun. Thank you. 